It is good to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Mark chapter 4. We're starting a series this week called Overall. As Jared and I were working through possible graphics for this series, and by working through, I meant I would scribble something on a napkin and he would do something with it. Uh, One of them came across as if it were the two words all over. And because I'm not ready to do a series on the book of Revelation yet, uh, we're going to hold that one and we're going to go to Mark chapter 4 and we're going to look at the idea of Jesus being over all things. Because when you walk through Mark 4 and chapter 5, You see Jesus and his authority over disaster, his authority over demons, his authority over disease, and his authority over death. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Mark chapter 4 is where we are. And while we're thinking about that, I want you to think about the person in your life, a friend of yours, who is that person. Maybe you are that person for someone, but all of us have a that person in our lives that we call when we need high school, college, my early single years. My that person was my friend Adam. And by that person, I mean I would call Adam when I needed something. And that did not mean or disqualify our friendship in any way. It just meant that Adam was a person that I knew that I could call if I needed to get a sleeping bag. Because you guys know I'm not planning to go camping on my own very regularly. I would call Adam and he would let me borrow a sleeping bag. I would call Adam and he would let me borrow multiple things. Adam would help me fix things. Adam helped me move at one point. Adam was that person. We all have that person. And for many people in the world, they like to be that person for someone. We like to feel, and many of you that look around the room right now are thinking, am I that person for Chad? And if you're wondering that, the answer is yes. But uh, when we look at this idea of that in regard to the disciples, we kind of see it. They feel that they are that for Jesus. And when we get to Mark chapter 4, we see that really dealt with. After all, the disciples met with Jesus, and when they met with Jesus, he was doing Jesus things. And they believed that this person who was going to start at least a rebellion, at most a revolution, was someone that they should partner up with. Because after all, Jesus was the voice and they could come alongside of this voice and help him in practical ways. Because remember, Jesus was going to go from place to place teaching and preaching. He needed a way to get there and they all owned boats. Let's be this revolutionary leader's that person. They knew that Jesus would need to eat as he moved from place to place. And since they were moving about on boats, all of them were fishermen, very much like the entirety of Lake Jackson. They believed, well, if he needs to eat, at the very least we can fish. They were going to be people who served in some capacity to help Jesus along in his mission. The disciples were more than dwarves who chased around after Jesus. They were going to be part of what he was doing. That's why they would have the audacity at one point in the New Testament to ask Jesus, hey, when this whole kingdom gets set up that you're pushing back so far, could I sit on your right and I sit on your left? Two two of them asked that. The rest of them were thinking that. That's how the story works. Mark chapter 4 is where we are in verse 30, and we're picking up in verse 35. We're looking at a story of Jesus' authority over all things, and we'll start here. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, 
Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and they took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, you... You care that we're going to die? Don't you care that we're going to die? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Our main idea today is that creation responds to Jesus. And we have to ask this question, Do I? Creation responds to Jesus. Do I? Do I respond to Jesus? As we break down the text, wicka wicka, we can do it in four ways. Verses 35 through 38, Jesus directs our way. Secondly, we see this. In verses 39, Jesus displays his power and he delivers his people. So verse 39 is very much like when you get home with a bag of Chick-fil-A and they have given you a large fry instead of a medium fry. Just a little bit of extra. Jesus displays his power and he delivers his people. In verses 40 through 41, Jesus deserves our worship. 40 through 41. One more time for those in the back. Jesus directs our way, 35 through 38. Jesus displays his power, verse 39. Jesus delivers his people, verse 39. And Jesus deserves our worship. One more time. Uh, on, on that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along at, since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. Jesus has been doing multiple Jesus-type things in chapters 1 through 3, preaching, teaching, healing, and he is tired. And in the midst of this tiredness, he says, let's go to the other side of the sea. So just so we know from the first part of this text, Jesus has given a direction. And the direction that Jesus gives is, we're going to the other side. Now, I am not Rand McNally, but I do know this. If Jesus, that's a reference to maps for those of you who are far too young. When Jesus says, let's go to the other side, he has one place in mind. One place altogether in mind. If he says we are going to the other side, where, friends, are we going? To the other side. Simple, clean. I like that. They are run, now, just to keep this in mind, they're running everything Jesus has just said in these first three chapters through their heads. They're thinking about all of the things that he's done, the miracles that he has performed, because he's already been performing miracles. They're thinking about how they were called to follow Jesus. They're thinking about where he met with them. Four of the disciples Jesus met at the Sea of Galilee. A fifth disciple he meets at the Sea of Galilee, though that's the tax collector, not the fisherman. So Jesus meets five of his seven of his twelve primary disciples at the sea. And we have to consider what's taking place here while they're on this water. Uh, just, I've got a picture of the Sea of Galilee if you'd like to see it. It looks like this. That's it. Just a body of water. I've always thought about it and wrestled with it. I was there in December. I got to look at the water. This is from my hotel room. I'm looking out. And you can see from one side to the other. The entirety of the Sea of Galilee is really a lake. I don't know why they call it a sea. Just to confuse us. Water. It's 13 miles long. And it's about 7 miles wide. So if you are anywhere around the water, you can see what Jesus is doing when things happen on the water. If you are standing on the shore, you can see Jesus or whomever doing whatever whomever is doing out there. 
So you got to think about the Sea of Galilee and you've got to consider the storm 13 miles long, 7 miles across. The hills around it go up around 1,400 feet and the mountains go over 2,500 feet. The sea itself is actually about 700 feet below sea level, one friend says. And so you've got these mountains around it and the lake dips way down. Because of this, the Sea of Galilee is known for these massive storms. The reason is, I'm not a meteorologist, but I do know this. The cool winds blow over the mountains on the east of the lake and they drop down on the warm air that's on the water. So, boom, shakalaka. You've got a storm right there. Cold air, heavier than warm air. And, as the, and so it drops as the warm air naturally rises and creates these sudden storms. And all of a sudden, a storm comes upon the water while Jesus and his disciples are there. And what they thought would be a peaceful night where they were in complete control of everything and they could let this master of their sleep things get bad and there is a fight for your lives type of storm on the water it's called a lilac it's a squall is what one new testament writer refers to it as there's even the hint of a of a demonic presence on the water we see that jesus verse 38 was in the stern sleeping on the cushion the disciples were tested the savior he rested The storm was roaring. The teacher was snoring. The disciples are probably bleeping. Jesus is sleeping. You have... You have... Bleep! uh, You have this storm on the water. And Jesus is laid up on a cushion. Kids were at our house last night. We have some friends in town. They swam yesterday and they rode books. We made them swim some more. And they found turtles and they kissed those turtles. And they probably have salmonella. And we're going to work through that this week. It was my night to get dinner ready, so I picked up the pizza and started to open the boxes. The kids are all watching a movie while I open them, and we noticed that there were heavy eyes on the children. There were heavy eyes there, and we started to do what parents do when it's too early for kids to go to sleep. We just began to poke them over and over and over. You cannot go. Stand up. Run in place. There were no pillows there. They weren't laid up on pillows. They weren't ready for bed. Jesus gets on this boat and he finds the place where there's a cushion. He had planned to sleep. Jesus suggested a trip. And Jesus went to sleep. It alludes to what we see in Psalm 23. That he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And where he leads us, he is with us. Where he leads us, he comforts us. Where he leads us, he meets us. Jesus, asleep in the boat. You have all of these situations as you walk through the passage. You get to verse 39. You see two things, as I said earlier. He displays his power and he delivers his people. So the storm gets so bad that a group of fishermen ask a carpenter for advice. They woke him up and they say to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? Why is it that we immediately connect what we perceive to be a lack of activity on the part of our master to him not caring for us? That's how they feel. It doesn't seem like things are going the way they'd expected or planned for those things to go. So they go to him and do you not care? 
It's kind of rooted in Scripture, though. Think about this. Psalm chapter 10, you're familiar with the voice. Why, O Lord, do you seem to be so far off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? The psalmist, he points out what many of us feel as we walk through life's difficulties. My God, my God, we read in Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, my God. I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I am not silent. That's Psalm 22. Jesus references that on the cross, but we know that there was a humanness to his reference to that because Jesus is fully human and fully divine and says, My God, my God, where are you? Why does it seem that God is so silent, so distant, so absent from the throne? Why does it seem as if he is asleep when what are the storms that surround us are threatening? Sinclair Ferguson says this, There's an awful sense of being forsaken by God. That's not the right one. There's an awful sense of being forsaken by God when you know you were on the cross. In these moments where it feels like our lives are coming to their conclusion, when we are walking through the most difficult things, when it seems as, we, as if we are on the brink of death, it seems like God has left us. That's why we ask the questions that we ask. It's why we have the struggles and the fears that we have. When the storm was raging, these disciples are really faced with the difficulty of life. When they have to ask themselves, what is more powerful, this storm or Jesus? Because all of us know that when the pastor says in his sermon that God is in control, that we say amen, amen, and amen. And when life's circumstances deal something that would say that God isn't in control, we have to ask ourselves, who's more powerful, God or this? I read a tweet the other day. I like to read tweets. I'm about to delete Twitter off of my phone for the sake of my sanity. One pastor posts this. I use the term pastor in quotation marks because that's his vocation. As a millennial servant of the gospel, I want to be clear. The 2020 election is the most important election of our lifetime. I will do everything I can to help fill in the blank of his preferred candidate... Get reelected because the future of Christianity and religious liberty is at stake. The future of Christianity is at stake. This is a damnable lie from the pit of hell. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. Because while this young man may say this, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. Francis Schaeffer says this. Got a quote for you. Feel free to read along. Not aloud. That'd be awkward for all of us. The real problem is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the power of the Spirit. The central problem is always... The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God and not in the problems surrounding them. If we are wondering why the church does not function the way that God intends for it to function, that rests really in us much more than what's outside of us. 39, he got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Silence, be still. 
Israel's scriptures are emphatic that God alone controls the sea. We see it over and over and over in the Old Testament. We're reminded of the storm in Jonah chapter 1 when Jonah's on a boat he probably shouldn't be on. He gets tossed over and the water becomes calm. It brings to mind what we read in the book of Daniel chapter 7 when the, the beasts are coming out of the sea. Jesus uses the exact same words that God uses in Job when he rebukes the water during creation. The Bible says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Why? The, the wind ceased, there was a great calm, and Jesus was declared and displayed to be in control. But here's what we cannot miss, followers of Jesus. Jesus is in just as much control when the waters of life are raging as he is when they become still. None of the things that we're walking through as a society, as a community, as people who live on planet Earth in 2020 have come as a shock to God and God is not in any way sitting in heaven saying, Oh my me, what will I do with this? Corona? He is all-powerful. That doesn't mean that we should not be wise or consider a direction or any of those things. It just means that as God's people, we have to see that God is fully God. He does not stop being God because everything around us says that we can't be God anymore. See, the, the disciples have a belief in their situation that they are reigning in. We have this. He then says to him, then he said to them in verse 40, Jesus deserves our worship. Do you still have no faith? Up to this point, I've alluded to what takes place in Mark chapters 1 through 3. Here are the numerous things that they have watched Jesus do and heard Jesus say. They have seen him cast out an unclean spirit. They have seen Jesus heal numerous people, including casting out other demons. They have seen him cleanse lepers, which was something that could not be done. They have seen him preach with power. They have seen him declare himself Lord of the Sabbath. So when we consider that these men watched Jesus do these numerous things, those of us who claim to follow him today are in a very similar situation. When we look at what is in front of us and we are wondering, will I get to the other side? There will be moments for us where it seems like all is lost. But we are not called to look at what's in front of us. We are called to take daily, slow steps in the direction that he's given us, considering all that he has done. We consider when Jesus met with us on the cross and the power of what took place there. We consider when Jesus called us to himself, when Jesus delivered us to be his people. We consider the small ways that God has shown his general graces to us in our lives. We look at the power of God's Word and the character presented in it. We look over and over at the things that Jesus has done powerfully as we are asked to take steps into tomorrow. We know what He is doing today and has already done yesterday. 
We move forward in faith because Jesus has said to us, I will get you to the other side. And the promise of Jesus is this. If he says he will get you somewhere, that's where you're going. He delivers his people. Verse 41. And they were terrified. That's kind of how their whole nature of the disciples has been in this story. Luke tells us at the very beginning they were terrified. They were afraid of the storm. Again, it's so bad that these men who spent their lives on water were mortified. But here they're still afraid. They were at first afraid because the storm was there. And now they're afraid because the storm is gone. Because the storm's not supposed to be gone. They were terrified and asked one another, Who is this? The wind and the sea, they obey him. It reminds us of what we walked through as a church over the last few months in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 8. When Solomon, who cannot see the other side, he has the end right there in front of him. Life is meaningless and futile. Solomon says, No one can tell the wind what to do. And that's exactly where the disciples are here. What you have in this passage, though, is really a short mirror image of the entirety of the life of Jesus. You have the disciples in Mark chapter 1 through 3 seeing Jesus do powerful things in the same way that when we look at the entire life of Jesus, we see him come in doing powerful things. They are following him because they trust and believe in him because they've watched and seen him do powerful things. They are excited about the things that he's going to do. But there comes a moment for them where all is lost. In the entire story, we see that, they, that the moment comes where all is lost when Jesus dies because no one overcomes death. In this story, it seems like all is lost when he is asleep and all of them are afraid they're going to die. But there's the other side. The other side of it being this. The resurrection of Jesus is God saying to us as his people, I have won. Everything has to obey me. Do you not understand who I am? The other side of this story is Jesus standing there looking at the disciples saying, Where is your faith? But I love the words that he uses because when he talks about the idea of faith in this passage, he does not tell them they have no faith. He says you've got a little I'm going to build off of that. Because I'm going to build on me. Friends, I don't know where your faith is this morning. I don't know where your walk with Jesus is taking you. I don't know where your steps are. I don't know what you think about Jesus. I don't know if you're wondering if he's going to show up. I don't know what you're thinking about Jesus right now. But, but I do know that in the current climate that we live in, in the world in which we are walking through, we can look around and we can see that there are storms all around us. Difficult things, overwhelming things. And I'm not just talking about the things the news talks about. I'm talking about low-level things for us. Base-level things like loss of jobs and struggle with what we're going to do with those children if they make us Zoom a class again next year. Ladies, you can say amen. Men, you can say it's true. We have worked through that. There are difficulties that are coming after us. But Jesus has displayed that he has authority over all things. And we as followers of Jesus are to really trust that he's going to get us to the other side. 
He had a goal in mind and nothing is going to thwart the will or way of God. He will make himself known, make himself clear in the midst and in the face of all that we fear. So what if we build on our faith because he is allowing us to? What if we take steps, small steps, steps trusting that he is for us? That he has called us to himself. That he has equipped us for this. That he's our hope. Our hope is not in anything other than Him. So I would invite you this morning to wrestle with what you're doing with the message of Jesus we see presented here and throughout the entirety of His story. The disaster does not control Jesus. Jesus controls disaster. Jesus Lord. He reigns. He rules. And He is asking His people to trust Him because they don't. They don't. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the chance that we've had to meet together in your word today. We thank you that you speak to us from it. We thank you that there's power in it. We thank you that we get a snapshot of the entirety of the good story of Jesus in this short collection of verses. Lord, I confess that there are times in my life where I don't want to believe as if you are in control. I believe you are. But I'm going to ask you to help my unbelief. For whatever our folks are walking through this morning, I pray that you would help their unbelief. That they would see that you are in just as much control when all of this is chaos as you are when it seems as if everything is calm. So God, if there are those here who've never trusted in you, Lord, we pray that you would, that they would see and know salvation. That they would fall down and worship you. Lord, for those who are believers, let us see you meeting us in the way that we need to be met from you. Help us to follow you, Jesus, to trust you, to believe you. We ask all of this in your powerful name. I'm over here if you need me.